Well, I'm wondering this morning if you've ever heard of the Doolittle Raiders. If not, you've certainly heard of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, when Japanese planes bombed Pearl Harbor, leaving 2,000 dead, hundreds wounded, and Americans absolutely outraged. In fact, a declaration of war was made the very next day, December 8th, 1941, and within weeks, President Roosevelt was meeting with his Joint Chiefs of Staff to develop a response not only to retaliate, but to bolster American morale. So the plan? Bomb Tokyo. Now you need to understand, at this point in American history, we didn't have planes that could fly that far. So the idea, at one level, was crazy. To put as many planes as possible on the biggest carrier as possible, to bring them as close to Japan as possible, with as many bombs as possible, so we could destroy Tokyo. Unfortunately, there were more questions than answers. Who would go? Which planes would we use? And on which carrier? Is this plan even feasible? Is it possible? Well, Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle immediately volunteered, and he decided the B-25 had to be the plane, but that the B-25 also had to be modified. So all the guns ripped out along with any extra weight and then three additional gas tanks installed so that each B-25 had 1,100 gallons of fuel with 50 extra gallons, listen to this, in five-gallon cans so that they could get to a flight distance of 2,400 miles. So the plan, 16 B-25s on a carrier, bring the bombs 300 miles from Japan, launch in the afternoon, arrive at dusk, and bomb Tokyo under the cover of night. Then fly off to China with literally no gas left in the tank, but only gas in the five-gallon cans, and then land safely there. So what happened? Well, disaster struck before the carrier was even 500 miles from the coast. Patrol boats came across their escort, sank a ship, and for all they knew, sent warnings ahead that they were coming. So they had to decide right then and there, wait until they were within range so that they could bomb and then make it to China or launch now. Ensure the surprise, but risk ever making it to China. So risk the mission or risk their lives. Well, the Doolittle Raiders, representing all of the American people, immediately offered their lives to ensure the mission. And 16 planes took off with 80 airmen flew six hours, reached Tokyo, bombed 10 different targets, and then flew off in the direction of safety. Unfortunately, only one plane made it to China. So in total, 15 planes went down. Three men died instantly. Eight were captured and tortured, and four of those men died in Japanese POW camps. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, I want to put in front of you a practical example 
of representative sacrifice. Because the Doolittle Raiders represented all of the American people. And they willingly sacrificed their lives, laid down their lives, gave up their lives in order to secure the safety of those that they represented. And even the bombing of Tokyo, although not very successful, pointed forward to another bombing, namely Hiroshima, Nagasaki. So a once-for-all bombing, if you will, that ended the war. Because all those ideas are on full display this morning in Exodus 28 to 31 as we look at God establishing his priests who are representatives, mediators who sacrifice their lives so that sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God. And just like the tabernacle, we're given very specific details on how that had to be done. Unfortunately, these priests were not very successful. But of course, point forward to the ultimate great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers himself as a once-for-all sacrifice so that sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God. That's where we're going this morning. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus 28. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 68. My outline is right there in your bulletins. Encourage you to grab your outline and a Bible. You'll be in great shape as we move forward. While you're turning, let me remind you of where we're at in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 to chapter 15 highlights that God is a God who saves. And then the second half of the book, the entire second half of the book, highlights that God is a God who sanctifies. So he desires a people who trust God's provision, keep God's law, and now Exodus 20 to the end of the book, Exodus 40, dwell in God's presence. So God not only saved Israel, but officially entered into covenant with her and desires to dwell in her presence. That's what we saw last week with the tabernacle, Exodus 25 to 27. So God's very specific design, moving from the Holy of Holies, from the courtyard, out to the courtyard, all pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. But now we're going to move from the courtyard, if you will, to the Holy of Holies, and we're going to do so by way of the priests who represent sinful people to a holy God and offer sacrifices on their behalf so that they can dwell in God's presence. And that becomes obvious even as we kick it off, 28, Exodus 28, verses 1 to 5. Follow along as I read. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve, serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Now recognize that this is clearly an introduction. We know that for a number of reasons. Number one, notice the list. Verse four, these are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat, a turban, 
and a sash. There's your outline for Exodus 28. Those are the things that we're going to talk about. Then number two, the fact that these verses serve as a bookend for the next four chapters. In fact, let me show you. Look at verse two. It says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron. What's the purpose? For glory and for beauty. So priests should look like God because they represent the people to God. So they must look glorious and beautiful. But in order for them to look glorious and beautiful, that requires, look at verse 3, all the skillful people whom God has filled with a spirit of skill so they might make Aaron's garments in order to consecrate him, set him apart as God's priesthood. So you need skilled laborers. Okay, now flip forward to Exodus chapter 31. Because that's exactly what God does. Again, this is a bookend. We know it's an introduction because this is where he's starting. But we know it's a bookend because we know where he's going to end. Exodus 31, look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I commanded." So what God commands, God provides, including people skilled in making the exact clothes that he requires the priests to wear. How are they able to do so? By the gift of the Spirit. So God's specific gifting in order to accomplish God's specific commands. How awesome is that? And how applicable this morning Because we know the New Testament tells us that by faith in Christ, we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, and that we've been given the gift of the Spirit. So just like the priests, we as believers are each gifted, consecrated, set apart to walk in the glory and the beauty of God, holy as he is holy, not with outward clothing, but with the beauty of a transformed life, empowered by the Spirit, doing exactly what God commands for us to do. So what God commands, God provides. Flip back to Exodus 28. Last observation before we move on. Notice how Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are listed in verse 1, which is so helpful. It's helpful because both of these guys are going to die. In Leviticus 10.1, why are they going to die? Because they offer unauthorized fire, strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. What's my point? My point is that God is very specific in the next four chapters. And you see it right there in your outline. It tells us exactly how the priests are to dress. That's Exodus 28. Tells us how they're to be consecrated, how they're to be set apart. That's Exodus 29. And how they're commanded to serve, what they're specifically called to do. Exodus 30. Very specific instructions. Obey them and you live. 
disobey them, and you die. That is a helpful reminder. Sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God without a suitable, holy before God representative, namely a great high priest. So B, the priest's clothes. Let's look at the details. I don't want to get bogged down here, but instead show you a very consistent pattern as we look at the ephod, the breastpiece, the robe, and the accessories. Pick it up in verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. Skip down to verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. Verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall notice, bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So Aaron is bearing their names, meaning he's representing these people, God's people, and serving as their mediator. So bringing God's people into God's presence. Number two, the breastpiece. Verse 15 says, you shall make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work. And on it, verse 21 says, there shall be 12 stones with names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. Then in verses 17 to 20, you get a list of stones. Each of the 12 stones, different stones listed right there. Now, what's awesome here is the stones are listed in two other places, only two other places in the Bible. Do you know where that is? The Garden of Eden and the book of Revelation. So the two places where God dwells with his people. Skip down to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So again, the priest goes to God on behalf of the people. He represents them to God. And why is that? Well, because God is holy and they are not. So the priest is bringing offerings on their behalf so that they might be forgiven of their sin and they might be accepted into God's presence. Which all gets highlighted The importance of this, number three, the robe, and number four, the accessories. Because in verses 31 to 35, we're told that the robe has bells on the bottom. Why does it have bells on the bottom? Verse 35 tells us, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. It is no small deal to represent these people to God. Meaning the priests are consistently and constantly sacrificing their lives, risking their lives, laying down their lives in order to represent the people. Be clear, that's exactly what they're doing. Number four, the accessories. Look at verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving on the signet, holy to the Lord. 
And you shall fasten it on the turbine, turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So all the accessories are very specific and highlight one major thing that the priest represents the people. Now let me show you a picture. Everybody's loving the PowerPoint here the last couple of weeks. So we're going to show you a picture so that you can put it all together. Right? So this is the ephod. Right? And up here on the shoulder, this is the onyx stone. So six names and then six names. Right? Here's the breast piece. So if you count that, there's four stones right there. Represent the people of God, the tribes of Israel. Here's the turban. Holy to the Lord. How clear is that? Right on his forehead. Notice how beautiful this is. Specifically worn. Now notice this. No shoes. The priest, in all the description, no shoes. No description of shoes. Why are there no shoes? Well, just like Moses took off his shoes at the burning bush because he was standing on holy ground, so it is with the priests standing in God's holy presence. What's the obvious tension? The tension is Aaron, the high priest, representing sinful people in the presence of a holy God, is sinful himself. He's just as sinful as the sinners that he's representing. So he needs atonement for his own sin. He, he needs forgiveness of his own sin just as much as the people need atonement and forgiveness for their sin. If he's going to be in the presence of a holy God, his sin must be dealt with first or he will surely die. Hence chapter 29. See the consecration of the priests. Now, consecration is a big word, but all it means is to set them apart. In fact, just look at verse 1. It says, now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them or to set them apart that they may serve me as priests. Again, we're going to move quickly here because there's a whole specific detailed process, including multiple offerings that take place, listen to this, over the course of seven days. It takes seven days just to consecrate the priests, just to set them apart for their work. So they, as sinners, can represent sinful people in the presence of a holy God and not die. So for simplicity, I broke it down into these three basic categories, physically clean, spiritually clean, and relationally clean. And that's the order in which it goes. Look at what it says in verse 4. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Later in chapter 30, you can flip there quickly, verse 17, we get all the details and the purpose of the bronze basin. Verse 17 says, you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and wash their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. So the priests have to be physically clean. 
which obviously points to the need for number two, to be spiritually clean. How did they do that? Well, through a myriad of offerings, as I said, over the course of seven days. So offering after offering after offering after offering, including one bull and two rams. Verses 10 to 14 explains the bull. Verses 15 to 21 explains the rams. But with both sacrifices, we get a glorious picture of substitutionary atonement. Verse 19 explains, you shall take the ram and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, symbolizing the transfer of sin from the priest to the ram. Then verse 20, you shall kill the ram and take its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear. Listen to the specifics. And on the thumbs of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Verse 21, then you shall take the part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments. Here's the purpose. So that he and his garments shall be holy. Now, do you understand what's going on? The whole purpose of the bull and the ram is to deal with the priest's sin. So they lay their hands on the head of the animal as a way of personally identifying with the significance of their own sin. So essentially, they're saying, my sin deserves the death that this bull, this ram, is going to die. So they are dying as a substitute for my sin, my sin on them, and therefore my penalty on them. Just like Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the priests need to be physically clean, and they need to be spiritually clean, so that they can be, number three, relationally clean. All I mean by that is that they're really actually reconciled to God. So in a right relationship with God and can dwell in his holy presence, which is highlighted in verse 31. It says, you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place, and Aaron and his son shall eat, eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. What exactly are they doing? They're feasting in the presence of a holy God. So the meal symbolizes fellowship. It symbolizes reconciliation. It symbolizes intimacy that can now be had with God. In fact, if you remember back to chapter 24, when the covenant was confirmed, 70 of the elders went halfway up Mount Sinai. What did they do halfway up Mount Sinai? They ate in God's presence. Whole point of being physically clean and spiritually clean is so the priests might be relationally clean, reconciled to God, perfect fellowship with him. Why is all of that important? Exodus 29, why, why is that all there? So that they can do their job as priests. D, service of the priests. So in Exodus 30, 1 to 38, we see just how incredibly important it is for the priest to worship God as he specifically directs. So they don't just get to make up their own rules. Now, it's helpful for you to know, some think these verses seem random. Some argue that they're out of place because we're back into talking about tabernacle furniture, but they're missing the point. Because God's not talking here about the furniture. Instead, he's talking about the service and the worship that the priests perform using the furniture. 
So verses 1 to 10 describe the altar of incense with its specific dimensions, just like last week, but the focus is not on the altar. It's focused on how the altar is used. Look at verse 7. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Verse 9. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. Lord is very particular about it. Remember what I said about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire. Where? On this altar. What happened to them? They died. God's very specific about what it means to worship him rightly. In fact, verses 34 to 38, he says, This incense isn't to be used for any other purpose, but should be most holy to the Lord. In other words, only for this purpose. Very precise. He's equally precise about the census tax, verses 11 to 16. So every person is to give a very specific amount, which goes towards funding all the ministries that are taking place in the tabernacle. And it's understood, even when you give it, that you're offering it unto the Lord. And he's precise about the bronze basin, verses 17 to 21. So specifically how the priests are to approach God. Verse 20, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Very precise. And he's precise about the anointing oil, verses 22 to 33, specifically used to consecrate the priests. Look at verse 22. Look at the details. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as months, so 250 shekels, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of seisha, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin, just a hin, just a little bit of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil and essentially anoint everything. Verse 29, consecrate all of it. Why? That it may be most holy. What are we to make of all of this? I mean, you read all of these details and you start asking yourself the question, is God just anal? Right? Is God somehow obsessive-compulsive. Is that what's going on? No. God is holy. That's what's going on. He's holy, holy, holy. And he's very precise and very specific about how sinful people can possibly be in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. He requires his priests to represent his people. Chapter 28. He requires them to be holy themselves. Chapter 29. And he requires them to approach him in a very specific way through very specific means. Chapter 30 so that they and the people might dwell in the presence of a holy God 
and live. Because sinful people die in the presence of a holy God. To just put it together. The priests aren't free to just approach God or engage God or, or worship God based on their own thoughts or their own feelings or their own ideas regarding what's okay and what's not okay. No, that's not okay. Priests must worship God, must serve God as God directs, exactly, precisely as God directs. Now just think about that for a second. Because this whole idea is totally contrary to most people's thoughts about who God is. Now what I mean by that is most people do not have a right understanding of the God of the Bible. So they don't really grasp, they don't, they don't really understand God's holiness. That God can only be approached in very specific ways with fear and trembling because he's absolutely righteous and he's perfect in all of his ways. And therefore he demands, only allows perfect righteousness to be in his presence and therefore that he cannot tolerate sin. So for most, God's kind of just there to accept and appreciate them for who they are and serve them in any way they like with any, without any requirements, which is not very godlike, and I would suggest is not the God of the Bible. So by definition, is a God of their own creation. One who fits into their loose morality and their relative truth and can be wholeheartedly denied now, yet accept you later and welcome you into heaven when you die. Because our culture says there's many ways to God. Which means you can come to God however you want. And you can come to God through any means that you want. Christianity's great. That's one way to God. But Buddhism's fine. Islam's fine. Or even generic spiritualism. Right? Some would argue that you can just go walk in a meadow and be in God's presence. It doesn't really matter how you approach him. Please listen to me. When you read Exodus 28 to 30, that couldn't be further from the truth. Exodus 28 to 30 makes it abundantly clear that God is an exact God, that God is a precise God, that God is a specific God, that God is a holy God who revealed how he is to be approached. The priests are not free to approach God by any old means they choose. Here's the connection. And neither are we. We must worship and serve God as he's prescribed. What's also crystal clear is that all these details point forward. To number two, the priesthood of Christ. Christ. 
which is infinitely better, superior in every way, because the Lord Jesus is superior in his holiness, superior in his representation, and superior in his sacrifice. The book of Hebrews has much to say about the superiority of Christ and his priesthood. I'm going to highlight just three of those areas. We'll start with A, the superior in his holiness. Because the problem with the priests in Exodus in the entire Old Testament was that they were sinners themselves, right? So they had to wash because they were spiritually dirty. They had to put on new clothes because they were morally stained. And they had to make sacrifices because they were wretched, wicked sinners. So throughout the Old Testament, priests were constantly, I mean over and over, offering sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats because they were constantly sinning. Never perfect. Never righteous, never clean. But Jesus, perfectly holy. Never uttered a wicked word. Never executed a harmful deed. Never pondered a hateful thought. Jesus never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the superiority of Christ. Superior in his holiness, but also be superior in his sacrifice. Now, every Israelite knew the priest represented them. That was obvious from all the details and the constant reminders. I mean, every time they put on the ephod, the names of 12 tribes are on their shoulders and on their breastplate. So they literally carried their names as a constant reminder that they represented God's people. And it was daily reminded to them in their sacrifices, first blood for their own sins and then blood for the sins of the people. It is no exaggeration at all to say that the blood just kept flowing. Non-stop, constant sacrifices, morning and evening. Always atoning for sin. But Jesus is better. Superior in his representation and superior in his sacrifice. Jesus offered a once for all sacrifice. His death one time. Just, just contrast the difference Constant sacrifices, constant offering, day and night, never to be stopped. Jesus, once for all. His death, one time. To pay for all the sin, past, present, and future, for all the people who put their faith in him. Hebrews 7.26 says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up for them. Jesus is not only a better priest, he's a better sacrifice. He's a once for all sacrifice. You know, Hebrews 10.12 says, when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Don't you see the priests were always working? Constantly working. I told you, seven days a week, constantly working. Always sacrificing because there was always more sin to atone for. Not Jesus. 
Jesus sat down. He offered a once and done sacrifice. Once for all. That's the superiority of Christ. Superior in his holiness. Superior in his sacrifice. C, superior in his intercession. What do I mean by that? Well, the priests in the Old Testament had this one major problem that just kept happening all the stinking time. They kept dying. They just kept dying. Whether they died of old age or they died while in office. What do I mean, died while in office? Well, what I mean by that is while they were making a sacrifice in God's presence, they died. Either way, they kept dying. Not Jesus. Jesus' priesthood is not temporary but permanent. So he always lives to intercede. Hebrews 7.23 says the former priests were many in number. Why were they many in number? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus remains forever. Therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to intercede. Jesus' intercession is eternal. Starts when you first believe in him and continues on throughout all eternity. In light of that glorious truth, think about these words. These are the words that we're going to sing in our closing hymn this morning. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. Let me just say in summary, Jesus is better. Do you know how many problems that would solve in your life if you can just remember that phrase? Whatever you're tempted by, whatever you're prone to chase, to just tell yourself, remind yourself, Jesus is better. Superior in his holiness, superior in his sacrifice, superior in his intercession. Jesus is better in every single way. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian or you're here this morning as a new visitor, I want to appeal to you very specifically this morning. Here's my word for you this morning. Put your faith in Christ. Why would I be so bold? Well, because Jesus is the only sufficient sacrifice for your sin. He's the only one able to represent you, mediate for you, and bring you into God's presence for all eternity. And in the same way the Old Testament priests didn't have the freedom to approach God any old way they chose, neither do you. If you want to be reconciled to God, you have to come to God on God's terms. Which means you have to put your faith in Christ. Because if you try to come to God by any other means, you are going to end up like Nadab and Abihu. Rejected by God and dead for all eternity. 
So my encouragement is to stop trying to to play by your own rules. Stop trying to create a God of your own imagination. God is God. And there is no other. And he's glorious. And he's beautiful. And he's made a way. One way. An exclusive way. For sinners like you and me to be accepted into the presence of a holy God. But you have to put your faith in Christ. You can continue to try other ways. But they will never be successful. There's one way. Faith in the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, is the only way to be reconciled to God. And he told us that himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. I'm pleading with you. I'm praying for you that you might repent, believe in the Lord Jesus, and be saved. Which brings us to number three, the priesthood of believers. Now what's absolutely glorious about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the coming of the new covenant is that God now makes us priests. Right? That's why 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So two challenges as we consider the priesthood of believer. The first is A, our ministry. Because priests were representatives. That's who they were. They were mediators whose deepest desire was to bring the people to God to represent them so that they might live in God's presence for all eternity. But isn't that the exact same thing that we're called to do as Christians? Don't we declare by our words and our actions who God actually is to an unbelieving world? And don't we plead with them to come to God through the specific means that he's appointed, namely through the Lord Jesus Christ, appealing to them, pleading with them, so that they as sinful people might be reconciled to a holy God? How? Through faith in Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. That God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Which is why every Christian must be a proclaimer of the good news of the gospel. Because we've each been given the ministry of reconciliation. If you will, that's our job description as New Testament priests. So we're called not to just be friendly, respectable people who are hard workers and have well-behaved children. That's all great and good. But if we aren't proclaiming the gospel, then we're not doing our jobs. So we would be failing as priests. So let me just ask, are you faithfully proclaiming the gospel? 
Are you pleading with unbelievers to come to God through the specific means that he's appointed? Appealing to them, pleading with them so that they might be reconciled to a holy God through faith in Christ. I appeal to you to embrace your role and your responsibility as the priesthood of believers and to implore others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I'm really saying to you and to myself this morning, let's do our job, what God has called and commanded us to do as priests. Secondly, as priests, we are called and commanded to give our entire lives as an offering to the Lord. Now, you may be are thinking, wait a minute, I thought priests were priests and offerings were offerings. Aren't they different things? Well, Jesus was both the high priest and the sacrifice. So he calls his people to be both priests and sacrifices. Right? That's why Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I'm not sure Paul could have been any clearer than that, that our whole lives are meant to be one nonstop sacrifice, nonstop offering. So everything we have, everything we are is called and commanded to go on the altar as our spiritual service of worship. So here's the question. Is that how you think about your life? Does all your money, all your time, all your energy, all your efforts, do they all belong to God? Or do you have parts and pieces? Parts and pieces that belong to God. Parts of pieces that just belong to you. What parts are you holding back? I would suggest that every single one of us has something. We have something in our lives, parts and pieces. Some things we don't struggle with at all. That's the Lord's and it's all his. But not this. This is mine. We all have something. Here's the question this morning. What is your something? And are you willing to acknowledge that something before the Lord? Will you own it? Will you repent of it? Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's an expectation. Maybe it's a relationship. Whatever it is, will you own it for what it is and repent of it this morning, knowing that your life is not your own but belongs to the Lord your God? You know, in my mind, the Doolittle Raid is super helpful. It's just helpful as I think through this on a daily basis. Because the battle is raging, spiritually raging for people's souls. And we're being given an opportunity on a daily basis to jump in to fight and to serve as representatives. To willingly sacrifice our lives, lay down our lives, spiritual offering before the Lord for the well-being of others. Joyfully laying down our lives on the mission, God's offering, so that others might live. 
The only question is, how are we going to respond? Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle said, here I am. Send me. And 60 men were right behind him. Here I am. Send me. My question is, how are you going to respond? My prayer is that we step up on a daily basis. That before you get out of bed in the morning, you have a conversation with the Lord. You know that conversation? I know that conversation very well. I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, I am tired. And then the Lord and I talk a bit. And I say, here I am, Lord. Send me. On a daily basis, we have a choice to make. To offer our lives as a daily sacrifice, holy unto him. And to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. May God give us the grace to embrace this glorious reality that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we are a people for God's own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful for these details. Boy, oh boy, I recognize that Exodus 28 to Exodus 31 is not the passage that we jump to in our daily Bible reading. These are chapters that we skip over and move on, and we skip over and we move on because of all these details. Father, I pray that all these details would help us to understand that you are a holy God. And there is only one way to be reconciled to a holy God, and that's through faith in Christ. And by faith in Christ, we are called to be a holy nation. We are called to be a priesthood of believers. So, Father, I pray that you would empower us by your Spirit. What you command, you provide. I pray that by your Spirit, you would empower us to go and make disciples of all the nations. That we would recognize our ministry of reconciliation and we would recognize that our lives are to be sacrificed for your glory. So Father, we pray that you would be doing that good work in every mind and in every heart that your name might be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. 
Amen.